Micah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. The Lord's case against Israel. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Thank you, Sue. And thank you to Rachel and Adele for bringing God's word to us. And it's just, it just always strikes me that it is such a privilege and so awesome that we get to hear God's word each week here on a Sunday. And I hope, obviously, we're all reading our Bibles during the week as well. But isn't it amazing that we can come together and without fear and without concern and openly, we can hear from God's word. And not only that, we get to hear it in our own language and it was actually really lovely to have a more modern reading being read and some traditional words up on the screen. And just a reminder to us, I think, that God's word is so rich, it's so powerful, it's so full of wonderful things. That's just, uh, I've written here, as my introduction just says, word of God equals yay. So that's, that's kind of how I feel about the word of God. And it's a privilege to come here and to be able to unpack some of that this morning. So way back, way, way back in the mists of time before I was called to ministry and just as I was starting out uh, my career as a musician, uh, as a freelance musician, I worked part-time in a shop. And I have to tell you this, working part-time in a shop is going to do one of two things to you. It's either going to breed in you the most incredible amount of patience or it's going to breed in you an absolute loathing for all of humanity. Okay, it's one, it's one or the other. Because, to be honest, although the mantra is, the customer is always right, I can tell you with absolutely no fear of contradiction, nine times out of ten, the customer is not right. Okay, nine times out of ten, the customer is very, very wrong, in fact. 
And now I worked in a music shop and I thought, this is going to be great, isn't it? I'm going to be surrounded by stuff that I like, instruments and uh, sheet music and accessories and all of this kind of things. And I'll tell you, it was brilliant. And the discount, the staff discount, oh, that equipped me for years. Absolutely fantastic. But there was one incident, and it just sticks in my mind. It's such a small thing. I don't know why it sticks in my mind, but it does. We used to sell little packets of guitar plectrums, you know, little plastic things that you strum a guitar with. And they would be a, a kind of random assortment of selection. Basically, we'd just pick up a handful, chuck them into a bag, and then sell them at you know, half price uh, for whatever they were going to cost. And the deal was you took your bag and you took your chances with it. Okay? There was no guarantee of what was going to be in it. Because it was literally just grab a handful, stick them in a bag. There was no guarantee you might get 10, 20, you might even get 30 plectrums in there. They might be all one weight and color and size, or they might be completely different. And I just remember we had this one guy who came in who would go through these bags of plectrums and take out what he wanted from the bags of plectrums and then put them into another bag. And once my boss asked him, what are you doing? Why do you do this? And he said, because I want to get what I'm entitled to. I want to get what I deserve. If I'm going to pay my money, I want to get what I'm entitled to. This is very much the message of culture, isn't it? We live in an entitlement culture. We live in a society that says we should get what we deserve. Oh, just for being alive, we should get things, good things. Just for being alive and existing, we should get good, entitled things. We should get what we deserve. But if we pause just for a second and think about it, as Christians, knowing the story of God, knowing the truth of Scripture, do we really want what we deserve? Really, when we pause and we just think about it, do we really want what we truly deserve? I think the answer is no, actually. We don't want what we deserve. Because what we deserve is terrifying. We want what we get from God, and what we get from God is mercy. And that's what we're going to be thinking of this morning, mercy, what it means to receive and live mercy. So I just want you to hold on to that thought. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you're accessing our text via a mobile phone or through an app or something, please do turn to Micah chapter 6. You'll find that in your Old Testament. You'll probably have to use the index to find it. I did, and I've been preparing for this sermon series for ages, and I still have to go, where is Micah? Do turn to Micah. We're going to be jumping about a little bit in Scripture, but everything will come up on the screen elsewhere. But let's just root ourselves in Micah. And particularly, and I'm really excited about this series, because we're going to be looking at these words, this single verse, really, from Micah chapter 6. And it's just verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God, which is not coming up. There we go. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And those three things are what we're going to be thinking about, what we're going to be unpacking, what we're going to be exploring and trying to understand as commands for us. Now, the eagle-eyed amongst you will have noticed we're doing them in a slightly different order. Instead of act uh, act, love, walk, or do, love, walk, as, as I've got it. Uh, we're doing love, walk, do. And there are reasons for that, which I hope will become clear 
as we explore the passage. It's not just that it scans better and looked better when I put it on the PowerPoint slide. But this morning, we're focusing on what it means to love mercy. So we're thinking about this second one. What does it mean to love mercy? So let's set the scene. Micah is a prophet, uh, and he's actually one of the bigger names in biblical prophecy. And these verses, in fact, this verse in particular, is quoted a lot. And we often take it actually out of context. And, And when we take it out of context, we lose some of the significance and the impact of it. You'll all be familiar, I'm sure, with these words from Jeremiah 29. These are words we do the same thing to. So Jeremiah 29, 11 For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. These are amazing words, yes? These are great words. These are comforting words. These are words that I have spoken over people when they've been struggling. And these are words that have been spoken over me when I have been struggling. These are words that we know are true. We know this is true about God, that he does have plans for us. He's not just kicked us into existence and then abdicates responsibility and and goes away and leaves us. God is a permanent presence with us. He has his plans. And we know that these plans are plans for good. We know they're plans to prosper us, not to harm us, to give us hope and future. Anybody who spent any time at all with God any time at all in scripture, knows these things to be true. And they're great words. But actually, this verse comes from within a much larger passage, a much larger uh, passage from Jeremiah and a much larger place in the story of scripture where the prophet is speaking to exiles. So the people of God have been exiled and they're living in exile. And in exile, they can't worship God. Not openly. They can't worship God the way they're supposed to. They can't go to the temple like they're supposed to. They are slaves. They are not their own people. And so now God is speaking these words into that situation. And suddenly we have a broader, a richer meaning to it. God has plans to prosper us, not just when things are going okay, but when things are really not going well at all. God has plans for hope and a future, even when everything seems stacked against us. God has plans for us, even when we cannot possibly fathom how good can come out of the situation. And it gives a broader meaning to a verse that we love so much that we take it in isolation and we print it up on posters and fridge magnets and tote bags and and surround ourselves with it. So Jeremiah reminds the people of a fundamental truth. And when we locate Jeremiah's words in the situation, we get a bigger understanding. In the same way, let's take these verse from, this verse from Micah, to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. And they are still good words. They are still important words. They are still true words. They are still words of encouragement and a call to action. And we put them on posters and we put them on tote bags and fridge magnets and yes, even t-shirts. But again, we get a much richer, broader understanding of them when we contextualize them, when we understand what is going on. We see that they're richer, they're more significant. So what's going on at this time? Well, Micah is writing into a period of history where the people of God have divided themselves into two kingdoms. So after the death of King Solomon, a civil war breaks out amongst all the people of God. Okay? So the nation is split over the question of who is going to be king. 
Now, we've got a lot we could say about what God has to say about kings in Israel, and maybe we'll come on to that in a few years' time. I feel a king's sermon series brewing somewhere. But the nation is split after the death of Solomon, and eventually Rehoboam takes the southern tribes, the southern tribes who are living in the land, and they get called Judah, and Jeroboam takes the northern tribes and calls them Israel. But the important thing is both these kings, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, claim to be God's anointed king. They both claim that they have the divine right to rule. You can read all about this if you want in 1 Kings chapter 12. Now God raises up prophets in both the southern and the northern kingdoms to speak truth into the kingdom. And you'll remember a few weeks ago when we talked about prophecy in our series on gifted, we talked about how sometimes prophecy is recalling the past and speaking truth into the present. It's not just about predicting the future. It's about recalling the past, speaking truth into the present. This is what Micah is doing. He's calling people to the past, uh, to remember the past, and to recognize their current situation. In the north, uh, Micah is one of four prophets, by the way. They're roughly contemporaneous. They overlap a bit. They're all roughly the same time. And in the north, you have Amos and Hosea. Again, names we'll recognize. And in the south, you have Isaiah and Micah. And the interesting thing is these prophets basically, with some variations and some additions and some bits missing, say the same thing. They have the same message that they are communicating to God's people, and it's this. Turn away from your wickedness and return to God. The message is this. You have become worldly. You have forgotten God. You have forgotten what God has done for you. Turn back to God. Now, there's a lot more, obviously, that goes on in these, particularly in Isaiah. But essentially, all four prophets at some point give this same message. Come back to God. Because this period in the history of the people of God is one marked with sustained and repeated seasons of the people turning away from God. They lose their fundamental understanding of what it is to have been called out by God. And they stop having hearts that are essentially orientated towards God. And instead, they become increasingly worldly and self-centered. And this is not to say that they aren't religious. This is not to say that they don't still do the business. They're still doing their sacrifices. They're still attending temple. They're still saying the things they're supposed to say. They're still doing the things they're supposed to do, but their hearts are not what's governing it. Their lives do not reflect the faith that they are professing. And here, Micah writes, and if you want to read this, and if you want to read one of the most scathing takedowns of a people in the Bible, read Micah chapter 3, but make sure you're sitting down and you've got a cup of tea when you do it. Because honestly, Micah tears the people apart in this. And he says to the wealthy, especially the wealthy, that they have a thin veneer of religiosity that's barely disguising their true venal nature. Corruption, idolatry, greed, selfishness, bribery and injustice, that marks the daily lives of these people who are pretending or who at least have an external showing of religiosity. And it's like they've compartmentalized their their faith, or their profession of faith, 
from their daily lives. They've compartmentalized it. They've made one thing completely separate from the other. And it's this that Micah's speaking into. So now these words, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly, take on a whole new meaning for us. Because Micah is calling the people back to what they should be doing. These are not just suggestions. This is a heart cry of the prophet. This is a heart cry of God to the people. Come back and do the things you're supposed to be doing because you have turned away and you are not living the way you should be. And the challenging truth for us is, isn't our world a lot like that today? Isn't our world an awful lot like that today? You do not need to look far to see corruption and injustice in our world. You do not need to read very far into your newspaper to see corruption right there. You do not need to turn on the news for very long and you will see injustice and bribery and hatred and suffering that is caused by people who are supposed to be better. It's a very different expression nowadays, but fundamentally we have the same problem. And the danger for us as believers, as a church, is that we might fall into that pattern of compartmentalizing our faith. That faith is something we do on a Sunday morning for an hour and a half. And then the other 167 and a half hours of the week, we're just like the rest of the world. If we come and we sing our songs, if we say amen to our prayers, if we listen to the preacher or not, then we've ticked the God box for the week and we're all set. Yes? Isn't that what it's about? We just come on a Sunday morning. We do our hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We can tick that off and then we can behave however we want when we go out of those doors. It doesn't matter. We can, st- we can be just like the world. Our neighbors, our closest friends, our work colleagues, the people we go to school with, our families might not even know we're Christian. Because there's nothing different about us from the non-believer. The call of faith, the call of following Christ, of course, is a call to live differently. Faith is not just for the hour and a half on a Sunday. It is a 24-7 thing. Our whole lives should be lived as lives that show and demonstrate Jesus. Our whole lives should be lived acting justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. So if we're going to do that, let's understand these three calls. What is mercy? I want to suggest as a first thought that mercy is love in action. Mercy is love in action. We're going to start with this. So a few weeks ago, we thought about these great verses from 1 Corinthians 13. You'll all know these. Probably some of you have got them on a fridge magnet or a poster or a tote bag somewhere, but we all know these words. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. These, we said, were the characteristics of God love. This is what God is like. This is what God's love for us is like. And this is the love that we are called to exhibit. And when we do, that is mercy. Mercy is taking all of these things and putting them into practice. Mercy is taking this not just as words that we like, 
but words that we live. This is us adopting this kind of as our mission statement in life, if you will. This is what we are supposed to be like. It's a goal that we strive towards. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's hard because I read that list and I think, am I all those things? Probably not, or at least not as much as I'd like to be. But I want to be those things. I want to strive towards those things. I want those things to be the reflection of me. I want people to say, wow, he's really patient and kind. That's Simon. He's really patient. He's not envious. He never boasts. I want people to say these things about me. I want this to be my biography. This is love and mercy is this in action. The mercy is also pardon. It's pardoning someone because ultimately when we do all of those things, those things that love is, we forgive. We have to. We have to forgive. We have to pardon other people. It's forgiving people a debt. So look at it this way. And this is one of the reasons we're doing this in a slightly different order. Justice is about restoring balance. Justice is restoring balance, at least in human terms. You hurt me, you hurt society, then you've put yourself in a position of debt towards me or society. And justice says you get to collect that debt. Now, it's not about revenge. It's about balancing the books. Mercy, in comparison, is saying you've hurt me, you've hurt society, but I'm not going to collect that debt. In fact, I'm going to wipe it clean. I'm going to say you no longer owe me for that hurt. Mercy is acknowledging that wrong was done, but not seeking to balance the books. So to love mercy means we love it when people are forgiven their debts. We love it when people don't get what they deserve. That's loving mercy. And it's a tough one, isn't it? Isn't that a tough one? Well, that's a tough one for me because human nature says, I want to collect that debt. Human nature says, I want to get even. I want to get back at you. I want my restoration. You've hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you in return. That is human nature. Human nature says, you've hurt me. I want amends for that hurt. Now, if I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up if you've ever felt like that, but I would have to put my hand up with you. And at its worst, that desire for settling the debt becomes vengeful. It becomes about revenge. You upset me, so I want to upset you even more. You owe me this debt. Not only am I going to collect on that debt, I'm going to increase it. I'm going to add interest to the hurt that you have caused me. You say something hurtful to me, I'm going to whack you around the face for saying it. I upset you, so you withdraw and you you don't speak to me. You give me the silent treatment. You attack me, I'm going to destroy your life. Perhaps an extreme example. That's what revenge is. And that is where we don't, because we cannot be just. It's not human nature to be just. At its best, we might want to balance the books. But at its worst, at its worst, we seek disproportionate revenge. We want to cause more hurt than we received. And that's why in our lives we have to have safeguards and we have a justice system. And that's what justice is. That's what human justice is. It's keep us in check. 
It's to keep us in check. That's all the laws when you read about them throughout, uh, throughout the Old and New Testaments. You'll see it's a check system. If this is done, this is the extent to which that person can be punished. No more. Because God knows that our human nature to say, is to say, you've done this and I am going to devastate everything about you. Think of the parable of the unmerciful servant. Peter comes to Jesus and he asks how many times should he forgive his brother? Uh, and, and Peter, I love Peter, because Peter, <laughs> Peter reminds me of me. Peter, he tries so hard, doesn't he? He tries so hard to get it right. He, he comes, Lord, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive my brother? Seven times. And, and you can almost feel it in Peter's voice. He wants Jesus to say, yes, well done, Peter. That is right. You don't just forgive your brother once. You forgive him seven times. And Jesus says, no. No, you don't forgive him seven times. You give, give him seven times, 70 times, or depending on which translation, 77 or seven times 77. And Jesus' point is, you think you're getting this right because you're saying, oh, I'm going to forgive seven times. I'm telling you, you have to continually forgive. You have to keep forgiving to abundance. And then he tells this tale. He tells this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. Restoration. Guy owes the king 10,000 bags of gold. That's quite a lot, 10,000 bags of gold, now as much as it was then. And this is the king's answer. This is what you have to do to restore it. This the servant fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Mercy, in action. You owe me this, and this is the punishment you deserve, and I choose not to give you that punishment. I choose to forgive the debt completely. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, a far lesser amount. A hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to trick him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Revenge. You owe me money. I'm going to choke you because you owe me money. You owe me a debt. I want to hurt you more. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Revenge. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything. And the master called in the servants, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So here we've seen all three of those things. We've seen justice. You owe me X, Y, Z, and so this is what you have to do to repay that debt. We've seen mercy. You owe me this, but I see you cannot possibly hope to repay that, so I'm going to forgive you, and we've seen revenge. I'm going to choke you because you owe me money. And we'll think more of justice in a couple of weeks' time, so just hold on to this. But what Micah is saying is that we shouldn't be a people who, who seek justice in this way, in human terms, 
And we definitely shouldn't be a people who seek revenge. We should be a people who are going for that third way, the mercy. And the best way we can start this, the best way we can start moving towards loving mercy and really loving it, not just talking about it, but loving it, is to understand how much mercy we have been shown. Now, here's a paradox for you. There are many paradoxes in Christian faith, and this is one of them. Mercy cannot exist without judgment. Mercy cannot exist without judgment. Without understanding judgment, mercy is a toothless niceness. And one of our one of the truths of our nature is that we tend to prefer or emphasize one over the other. Uh, we, t- we tend to prefer judgment or we tend to prefer mercy. And we, we struggle to hold those things, that cognitive dissonance of holding those two things together. But both are qualities of God. And this is what we heard in the reading from Rachel this morning. Because God is both merciful and the one who will judge. God is both of these things in complete perfection, and we are neither of those things in any sort of perfection. So if we tend towards judgmentalism, we fall short. Jesus calls us to account. He knows this is going to happen. He knows that our judgment is flawed. And he says, do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and within the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why look at the speck of sawdust in a brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to a brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, while all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. It's like the story now, if you know this story, maybe you've heard this one. A man and a woman are sat, uh, standing in the kitchen washing up, and the man looks out of the window and says, neighbor's washing looks really dirty. She clearly doesn't do her washing very well. I'm glad ours is better. I'm glad our whites come out whiter than white. Hers look dull and gray. And the wife sort of doesn't say anything. thinks, oh, blimey, mate, you're having a bit of a go, aren't you? And the same thing happens the next day, and the same thing happens the day after that. And then on the fourth day, the man looks up and says, oh, she's sorted it. She's obviously using a new powder, or she's washing better, because her washing looks really white. And the wife turns to her husband and says, no, I washed the windows. We need to take the specks out, out of our own eyes before we cast judgment on others. Maybe the problem isn't with others. Maybe the problem with is, is with us. And the thing is that we are not just judges. That's the point. We are incapable of judging justly because we're always going to be tempted towards revenge and vengeance. So we heard this. I'm not going to reread this, but when the Son of Man comes in the glory and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And what happens is the consequence. And this is what we need to think about. Those that are goat-like... Those that are separated into that area are going away to eternal punishment. Those that are sheep-like are going away to eternal life. Now, here's the truth, and this is a hard truth to hear. There is going to come a day where Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Okay? There is going to come a day where Jesus will return in all his glory, and all the saints, all the people of earth, living and dead throughout all of time and all of history, will stand before him and give an account of their lives to him. This is coming. There is no escaping it. 
This is the truth. And the thing is, those who have acted in accordance with God's will will be granted eternal life. And the rest will be granted a fate that none of us want. But how many of you are scared right now? How many of you are sat there thinking, oh, good grief, I am not looking forward to that day. When I have to stand before God and give an account for every word I've spoken, every deed I've done. I'm terrified. But I'm not. See, I'm not scared at all. I'm not scared about the day of judgment. And none who have been truly saved by Christ need to be scared by the day of judgment. Because those who have come to God through his grace and by our faith in Christ alone, we need not fear it because God is merciful. He takes loving into action. He places love into action and he pardons our wrongdoing. He doesn't seek revenge. He doesn't seek revenge. Instead, he acts out of mercy because we don't get what we deserve in life. And if we're Christian, we don't get what we deserve in life. And oh my goodness, does that not come out good for us? We don't get what we deserve in life because we get God's mercy instead of his punishment. We don't get what we deserve in life because the debt we've run up is forgiven. It's wiped clean. We don't get what we deserve in life. We get God's love in action towards us. And that is amazing, yes? The truth is, as Paul writes, what should we conclude? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Therefore, no one will be declared righteousness in God's sight by the works of the law. There is none who are righteous. And these words are terrifying. These words are scary. These words remind us of our fundamental nature, that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, that our temptation, our tendency, our human nature is to bring hatred and hurt and bloodshed and suffering and to do this again and again and again because we have turned from God and we are not a people of peace but a people of war. Since Adam and Eve first disobeyed God, this is human nature. We are marked by selfishness. But, but, because God is merciful, and because God is great, and because God is good, he wipes the death away. And he gives us a way out of all of this. He gives us a way to reject that human nature through his Holy Spirit, who comes and fills us and indwells us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. We can overcome these things through the power of God. And he says, you are no longer in debt to me. And that is why just a few verses later, Paul gets to write this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith in this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And he goes on and he says this. And these are, I think, some of the most amazing words in scripture. 
God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just at the right time. God's mercy is demonstrated in the cross of love. Because the debt was ours, but Christ came and he paid it. The debt was ours, but Christ came and he took it on himself. The debt was ours and God doesn't treat us with justice. Not by our understanding, but by his practice and his way and his way of his mercy. And if that isn't great news of glad joy, then I don't know what is. We don't get what we deserve. Hallelujah. We don't get what we deserve. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We don't get what we deserve. We get God's mercy instead. But let's not fall into the trap that the people did in Micah's time. Let's not just take that for granted. Go, well, you know what? I've got God's mercy. Therefore, I'm okay. And as long as I keep coming to church, I'm okay. Let's live it. Let's live out mercy. Let's take all those things, all that love, and let's put it into action. Because if we love mercy, surely we want to be merciful. So here's the challenge for us. Yes, we have the grace of Jesus that reconciles us to God, that one and for all time sacrifice that wipes the debt clean. But are we living mercifully? Do our lives reflect God's mercy towards others? Now, that's going to look different for each and every one of us. Maybe it's forgiving someone who's done you wrong and not demanding something, reparations for that. Maybe it's sacrificially giving to those who are in need, feeding the sick, clothing the naked, comforting those who are in pain. Maybe it's something as simple as biting your tongue when you want to say something that might hurt somebody else. That's probably the greatest act of mercy, honestly, that any of us could perform. Hold your tongue when you want to hurt somebody else. Whatever it is, however mercy is worked out in your life, live it. Because it's the test. And ultimately, when Jesus comes and he separates the sheep from the goats, he's not going to look at how often we came to church. He's not going to look at how long and fancy our prayers were. He's not going to look at how much our tithing was. He's not going to ask us deep theological questions. Could you explain how the atonement worked on the cross in uh, light of Karl Barth's theology? Uh, the answer to that question is yes, and I'll talk to you afterwards if you want. And he doesn't look at how long somebody has been following him. He looks for evidence of a changed heart, and the evidence of a changed heart is that we are merciful. Our mercy does not get us saved. But our mercy is the natural outworking of those who have been saved. So friends, how is mercy working in your life right now? Who can you show mercy to? Where can you be more merciful? Because if we are truly going to be God's sheep, then we need to love mercy and we need to live it as well. Let's pray. Lord, Father, God, we long to be a people who understand mercy and not just as a concept, but as a reality in which we live. 
We thank you for the mercy you have shown us, for the loving kindness you have poured out on us, that you took your love and put it into action on the cross, forgiving us, wiping our debt clean. So Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would convict us this morning to search ourselves, to examine ourselves and to ask, where do we need to show mercy in our lives? Where do we need to be more merciful? Where do we need to forgive? Where do we need to practice love in action? Lord, we long to be a people who act justly, who love mercy and walk humbly with you. So empower us, equip us and enable us to do that today, we pray. For the sakes and in the name of your son, Jesus, your mercy shown to all.